Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16 from the English Standard Version. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the sermon. Well, so last week we started off uh, our new series uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we looked at the Beatitudes. And uh, I want to start this morning by considering the small section that's in between the Beatitudes and the verses that we just heard read. That's just want to quickly begin this morning. The last Beatitude that Jesus mentioned, uh, as we heard last week, was the persecution of his followers. And then he follows that beatitude up with another reminder of the same thing. So it's the only one that actually gets repeated twice. Now, I think that there's a link that Jesus is drawing between joy and persecution. And it's not a link that we would typically make to suffering. And just think how this would have hit those first disciples who were listening. We're kind of used to hearing about this idea and this kind of teaching from the Bible of that there's going to potentially be potentially be some kind of suffering that is going to take place in the life of the follower of Jesus. But these guys, they wouldn't have been so used to hearing that. They had just left everything to follow him. And then one of the very first things that he tells them is that if they're going to continue to follow him, that they will be persecuted. I mean, they were already being harassed. These were a harassed people, many of them. They were probably hoping that they were going to be able to follow Jesus They'd be able to get some relief from that kind of thing, those experiences that they were having. But Jesus doesn't promise them that. Now, we're kind of sold things all of the time. We're used to being sold stuff. And one of the sales sayings that people adhere to is, you got to sell the sizzle. Give people all the benefits, but don't tell them all of the truth that lies behind it. All advertising sort of caters to this. Idea, And if you want to be a great motivational speaker or a writer, you know, you tell only the benefits that will be received if they follow your advice. But Jesus wasn't like that. You know, so often we say that Jesus' kingdom was not a kingdom that any of us were really used to. It was kind of upside down. He was very real and he was upfront as to the cost that there was going to be with discipleship. I mean, if you look in your Bibles, you will see that all the Beatitudes begin with, blessed are those. That's how the Beatitudes begin, blessed are those. But then you get to verse 11, and Jesus switches from the third person to the second person, and he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, it has become very personal. These first hearers of this would have been struck by the hearing of this. And we should be too. You see, what Jesus is saying was that if you follow these beatitudes that I just listed, I just listed all of these ways in which you will be a follower of mine. You will be a disciple. This is what your heart is going to look like. And if you do that, this is going to be the effect. It becomes very personal. If you live these things out faithfully, persecution will follow. And then he goes on to say, you are salt, you are light, so let your good deeds be seen by the whole earth. And when your good deeds are seen, there will be some who are going to persecute. So you have that attitude of the heart up top. The Beatitudes is really the attitude of the heart. And then you have what looks like an action down below. How are these things lived out? That's what the salt and light is all about. The hard attitude and what that's going to look like. And then in between, sandwiched in between, you have the reality of persecution. Because you can't escape it. The fact that this beatitude, as I say, is repeated, that is personalized, and that it comes at the end of the beatitudes, all those three things, it's personalized, it's repeated, and it comes at the end, should cause us to pay close attention. You know, what does this mean? What does it mean to be persecuted? I mean, persecution, it doesn't always mean being thrown into prison or beaten. Now, we're kind of used to hearing about that, and we focus on it like once a year, the persecuted church, and, and we've gotten involved with a number of refugee families, and this has been and currently is their position that they find themselves in, and that is a severe form of persecution that we don't experience here yet. But it does go beyond that, because the persecuted word bears the root idea of to pursue or to chase, to be pursued or chased. A good translation is actually harass. Blessed are the harassed. Now, few people who have lived in our time have really understood and expressed this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He knew a thing or two about persecution. He was hanged by the Nazis. Um, and while he was in prison, he said this. Suffering, then, is the badge of the true disciple. This book, The Cost of Discipleship, I should say. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and it is a token of his grace. Incredible words from someone that walked those difficult footsteps throughout his life. During a stressful time in Charles Spurgeon's life, when the Prince of Preachers, as he is known, was depressed because of criticism that had come against him in his preaching, his wife took a sheet of paper, printed the eight Beatitudes on it in large Old English-style script, and tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted the reality to saturate his mind morning and evening. Everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted. There are no exceptions. Thankfully, Tanya doesn't do that for me. I have enough trouble sleeping as it is. But it's not a bad reminder to see this, to know this, that there are no exceptions. So do not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when it comes, but surprised actually 
when it does not come. And maybe that causes us to maybe think about it. How come it's not coming? Why am I not persecuted? Why am I not harassed? Why do I never experience any kind of opposition to the way in which I live or the things in which I say? Listen to Jesus' testimony in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. He says this to his followers, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That's a promise that Jesus gives to his followers. Jesus says we're to rejoice and to be glad when this happens as a result of living righteously, living like him. Why? Well, it's not that he is saying, you know, be happy to, and enjoy it. It's not that it's like we're looking at it in a way in which, oh, I'm happy about this. I'm glad this is happening. That's different, and that would be kind of perverse. But he's saying that we can know that we are living as he's called us to live, and that should bring us joy. Because we're living as he has called us to live, and there's a certain sense of joy that comes along with knowing that. We're doing the right thing. We're living the right way. And this can cause our hearts actually to be joyful. Not that we're happy about it, but we know that we are secured in God's arms. That doesn't mean that all your conflict is persecution also. You know, you sometimes experience conflict for reasons that are far from spiritual, I would say. But when it comes as a result of living righteously, in that we can rejoice. We know that we are living the Beatitudes. So let's get practical. How are we to live? How are we to live? So up above, Jesus gave the heart attitude of a disciple. The Beatitudes, sometimes they're called, right? The way in which we should be, the way in which our hearts should be. And when those are the heart attitudes, then what does our life look like? If it's truly a heart attitude, it will bear a consequence and effect. How is that acted upon? And that's what Jesus says next, and he says it in so few words, yet those words, they carry a vast depth of meaning. So I want to look at this morning being salt, being light, and then finally what that produces. The salt of the earth. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the salt of the earth. Recently, Jen Wilkin was asked how the teaching of this sermon has transformed her life. Now, Jen Wilkin wrote her first Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount 10 years ago. It's a well-known one. Some of you may have gone through it. And she has recently reworked that study. And she said this in her study of it and in her review of it. She said, until I studied the sermon, she said that I held a weak understanding of discipleship, particularly in the area of obedience. Jesus is teaching about the necessary pairing of internal righteousness with external righteousness. It transformed my understanding of the work of the Spirit in our sanctification. Jesus is teaching about the necessary pairing of internal righteousness with external righteousness. And that's the link that we read up top and what we are reading now. It's the internal and the external. Now imagine what these words would have sounded like to those first followers. You are the salt of the earth. 
No one had probably ever told them that before. I mean, we talked about who these disciples were, men and women who had come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of them were from a lower caste background. Some of them were more prominent. Some of the women, as we had said, who were rather wealthy, who were entrepreneurs, who helped support Jesus' journey and his ministry. They came from all kinds of backgrounds, but many of them were living under a very oppressive system where they were being oppressed by the Romans. These were not necessarily esteemed people. Most of them didn't have much influence. But this rabbi was telling them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And this can be for us too. It's not that we can be salt or we can be light. Jesus says that you actually are those things. You already are those things. So we are called by Jesus the salt and the light of the world. Now imagine them hearing that. And imagine you hearing that. Like, think about it personally. This is what Jesus says about you. But the problem is we sometimes forget that. And he says we sometimes keep it hidden. We refuse to use our influence. And so here's a reminder and a look at how practical this teaching was. Now remember, what we are hearing, this is the greatest sermon ever preached. Well, like, not my sermon, but the sermon that I'm, that I'm talking about. It is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And in it, Jesus gives that call of heart transformation up top, the reminder that it won't be easy, but that it will be joyful. And then he gives this robust word picture slash illustrations of what these things will look like when they are lived out in your life. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth then? Because these are very robust word pictures. I mean, this is an illustration. It's only a couple of words, but it's so incredibly meaningful. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? And so a few things as we were, I was thinking through this, and the first is an obvious one that we talk about when we hear about salt is that it's a preservative. Now, Tanya and I tree planted with a guy who we became friends with who was very optimistic. He was always a kind of guy that saw the glass half full. And sometimes when you're tree planting, the glass is half empty. In fact, it usually is. And you wanted to complain about it, and you wanted to complain about it with everyone who was around you. It actually brought a lot of camaraderie. We could all complain about something together. But not this guy. He was always like, come on, guys, this isn't so bad. We can do this. Like, we got this. We can do it. Anyway, sometimes that's not what you wanted to hear, right? Anyway, he lives here in Winnipeg, and shortly after we moved here in the early 2000s, he was selected to take part in the reality TV show, TV show the Quest for the Bay. Has anybody here ever seen The Quest for the Bay? Wow. You guys don't watch Canadian television or what? <laughs> That's bad. It shows, it's a show where the team of people, they set off. I mean, it started right here in your own city. I can't believe you haven't seen this. It started right here at the Forks. They got in a York boat, and they went all the way up to York Factory at the, at the mouth of the Hudson Bay. Does that sound familiar now? Now, now few people know they've seen that? Well, maybe like two or three. So anyway. <laughs> It took them three months to get there, as they only used period-specific tools, a boat, clothing, and food. And everything was as it would have been for the fur traders 150 years ago. So they were reenacting this, starting from the forks, heading out to Hudson's Bay. One of the only foods that they brought along with them was pemmican, which is a mix of berries, buffalo meat, and fat. But within the first week, the pemmican got wet and in the bottom of the boat, and it started to grow mold. Each day, they would have to cut off the mold, and they would just eat what was, whatever was still good on the inside. It was terrible, and that's all they had for weeks and months on end. And that's what happens to meat when it gets old, though. You know, it starts to go bad. 
So how do you prevent against that in times before refrigeration? Well, it was salt, obviously. Salt is a preservative. Meat packed with salt does not spoil. That is what they needed to have, you know, on a long journey like that, where you did not have refrigeration. And if you watch to the end of the series, you'll see that despite the food going rotten, the boat falling apart, the torrential rains, the swarms of bugs, the miles-long portages, they made it. And it was in no small part due to the fact of our friend's positive spirit. When everyone else wanted to give up or thought that the task was impossible, he encouraged them all to continue on. And it worked. He was often persecuted because of his attitude that he had, but it was what brought them through and caused them to complete this long journey. And what Jesus is saying through this vivid word picture, he says, you are the salt of the earth. It is that the world tends towards decomposition. And the world is actually rotting away. Ken Hughes says that Jesus was under no illusion about the world apart from himself. When the world is left to itself, it festers and it putrefies. For the germs of evil are everywhere present and active. This is why it's such a vivid word picture. This is what Jesus was saying about the reality of the world that we live in. Jesus was saying that the earth is a dead body that is rotting. And so you disciples, you must go out. You must be rubbed into the world so that it could be preserved. We are called to have an incredible effect on the world that is around us. Jesus did not mince words when he says this about his disciples. And so think about that for a moment. Because as I said, this is a very personal thing that Jesus was saying. Think about this. What circles are you in? Who are the people that you come into contact with? regularly, or maybe on occasion. You know, think of all these areas, because I'm sure it's numerous. Friend groups that you're a part of, uh, neighbors, there's probably teams, there's maybe clubs that you're involved with, boards that you sit on, people who you work with, people who you go to school with. I mean, just think about those who are in your life right now. What circles of influence do you find yourself in where you gather with people regularly? Now, what influence are you having in those places? There is an incredible amount of pressure to go along with the direction of those groups. What are the conversations like? What are the attitudes that are present when this group gets together when you're there? What do you bring to it? How does it change or how does it not change when you enter into it? Do you go along with it or do you bring something different? Do you bring the beatitude characteristics into these people's lives? This is the call that Jesus was saying when he says you must be salt. You are going into these situations to be a preservative. Many of us are addicted to approval, addicted to acceptance. In fact, so much so that we will do whatever it takes in those so-called friend groups to get it. In order to be approved of, in order to be accepted, we will compromise absolutely everything. We will adopt the attitudes. We'll adopt the language. We'll adopt the talk. We actually become indistinguishable from Christless people. And what it becomes is it becomes an idol, acceptance. You have found a new God, a God of acceptance and the God of approval, and you do whatever it takes. How do you know you found a God? You'll do whatever it takes in order to gain that thing. If it's acceptance and approval, it has become an idol. 
And one of the things that we often say about idols is that you start looking like your idol. Are you indistinguishable from the Christless people around you? So take some time to think about that. You know, we think about this in terms of our church as well. What influence do we have in our community? How would our neighborhood be different if Ness wasn't in the middle of it? What are we bringing to the table? A church's effectiveness can be seen in this test. If we cease to exist, would our neighbors be happy or would they be disappointed? Would the ones who don't even have an interest in church be of the opinion that this church brings something valuable into the community that they will miss? You know, that's kind of like a Jeremiah chapter 29 faithfulness that God called the people of Israel to be while they were in Babylon. You know, would we be missed if we were no longer here? What effect are we having within our community? And so we think about this. How are we being a preservative? How are we being salt in this situation that we find ourselves in and into all of our groups that we find ourselves in. The second thing is that salt brings out flavor. I know my clicker's not working there, so if you want to just give that an advancement. Salt brings out flavor. Now, I love salt. My family tells me I use too much of it. I usually salt before tasting, and then I salt again. It makes everything better. Now they're finding that it even makes sweet things better. Salted caramel, salted chocolate. I mean, everything is better with salt, right? With enough salt, I can probably eat almost anything. And this is what we are called to be. Jesus brings out the best in us. It brings out the flavor. It brings out the good. The spirit-filled disciple should make all of life better for themselves, but also for those who are around them. The spirit-filled disciple. When Jesus comes in, it, should make every, it makes everything better, and we should have that effect where we are. We should be writing the best songs as Christians, making the best movies. We should be the kind of employee that our bosses and coworkers love having around, the kind of student and neighbor, etc., that are the best of the best. And, you know, like when I say this, not every Christian is the life of the party kind of a person, but you don't have to be to bring Jesus' flavor to life. When you infiltrate into these communities and into these places, do you bring that goodness of what it is meant to have Jesus come into your life? Salt brings out the flavor. The third thing I think salt does as well is it creates thirst. You know, there's a reason why they serve salted pretzels at Oktoberfest. Do others want to know what it is about us that makes us the kind of people that we are? They desire to know Jesus because of our involvement in their lives. Do they see something there? And it's like, wow, I'd like to have that as well. You know, back when I was building trusses, I worked with a guy who always looked mad. He was always complaining about something or other. He wasn't a lot of fun to have a conversation with. You always knew as soon as you went up to this guy, it was going to turn negative really quickly. And then one day I found out that he was a Christian or that he went to church at least. And I was like, really? I mean, I never would have guessed it. Not a particularly salty guy. But then I thought, was I? What about me? What's it like to come up to me and to have a conversation with me? What kind of a reputation do I have in this place as well? Are others knowing about Jesus and desiring something of the things of God because of my involvement in this place? Was I creating a thirst for Jesus in others. It's very easy to be critical of others, but you know, we have to look at ourselves. Because the thing is, you have, to pour, you have to be poured out to be salty. 
You can't be salty if you just stay inside the shell. You know, I went to a restaurant a while back and I was reaching for the salt before I'd even tasted my food. And I found that the salt was hard and it wouldn't shake out. You know, have you ever had a salt shaker like that? It's got moisture in there. Something happened anyway and it just, it turns rock hard and you're trying, you know, and I find that incredibly frustrating. You're shaking it. I had to rigorously bang it on the table until I could get it loose, until I could get it out into the real world, which in my case was my dinner. Is that what you're like? Not letting your saltiness out. Maybe too afraid, maybe too addicted to acceptance. Are you indistinguishable from the surrounding culture? Maybe you just haven't had a wake-up call for a while. Maybe you haven't read Jesus' words for a while. I mean, take this sermon from Jesus as that call. Don't lose your saltiness. And you have to get out of that salt. Actually, wasn't there a book about that? Out of the salt shaker, out of the salt shaker into the world. Is that what it's called? Rebecca Pippert. I don't know how I remember that. Just came to mind. It's probably a good book to read. I'm sure it's about what we're talking about this morning. You got to get out. You can't stay in the jar in the shaker. Don't lose your saltiness, or you'll only be good. Jesus says to get thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus's words, not mine. I mean, these are hard sermons to preach, I'll be honest with you, because I'm listening to Jesus preaching to me while I'm preaching to you. I mean, we're all in this together, helping each other out of that salt shaker so that we can truly preserve, bring flavor, and create thirst in our communities of people. So salt is a preservative, brings out the flavor, creates thirst. The only other use I can think of salt is putting on an icy road, and I, I'm not sure what that would uh, relate to in our lives, so we'll just leave it at those, at those three for now. The second thing that Jesus says is that you're the light of the world, and that's verse 14 and 16. Now, you're probably familiar with the theme of light from the book of John. As you read through the book of John, Jesus came as a light in the dark world. This theme pervades John's book, as a matter of fact. Everything, we find it so often throughout his book. There's a spiritual darkness that pervades everything in this world. And the real tragedy is that the people of earth love it. It's just as, we, as Jesus said before that, you know, that the, the world is, de is decaying. He also says that the world's in darkness, but not only that, but that the world actually loves that. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.19, he says, And this is the judgment. He says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus came to bring light into our world. It's a world is full of darkness, and the people love the darkness. But when Jesus comes, they see something that is better. And if you've come to Jesus, you have seen that there is something better in him. The light has been made real to you. You've seen it. He showed it to you, and you responded to it. And we are also called to be light. We reflect the light that Jesus brought in the way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. We reflect it wherever we go, like a city that is on a hill that shines for everyone to see is how our light should shine. When we were in Honduras a number of years ago, we stayed in a home that was high on a hill on the edge of the city. And because of the poor state of the country, the, electrical, the electric grid would lose power 
multiple times a day. Needless to say, there are no EV cars down there. But as we stood on the patio of that house where we were staying, and the lights of the city would go out, it was as if the city was just no longer there. It was total blackness. All you could see in the evening was the shadow of the hills. It was like we were out in the wilderness, yet we, had, we knew we were in a city of millions of people. But then the power would come back on and the city would light up and you could see that we weren't in the wilderness, but we were in a vast city that stretched out beyond the hills that were on the horizon and it brought the true reality to the situation. Now you can't hide that. When the light is on, it cannot be hidden and why would you? And when you light a lamp, Jesus says, you obviously wouldn't throw a blanket over it or else you wouldn't have lit it in the first place. So he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion that Jesus says. Jesus says, if you're light, then shine. It's not an option. Let's keep the emotion of this imperative before us as we consider what he says. Now, the mode of shining, he tells us, is good deeds. How do you let your light shine before others? Jesus says, you let people see your good deeds. You do good deeds in the view of everyone. And there's two kinds of good deeds that the Bible often talks about. The word he uses is kalos, which carries the idea of attractiveness or beauty. So deeds that are attractive or beauty, rather than the more common agathos, which means good and quality. So these are good deeds in that they are good because of their attractiveness and their beauty. Those are the kind of deeds Jesus is saying we got to show in front of the watching world. Jesus wants our light to shine through beautiful, attractive works. Of course, he's not recommending self-conscious, staged works. Yet he does suggest that we should let them be beautiful. Jesus tells us that the works of compassion and caring are the top priority. I want to give you a practical example of this. In ancient Rome, infanticide was incredibly common. And the chosen practice in that culture of infanticide was exposure. Simply leaving the child outside and abandoning them, it, was really the, it was really became the early form of abortion. And as you might guess, the majority of these children being exposed were girls. But both boys and girls were killed, particularly in families that had limited income and resources, as a way of conserving family resources. And as this became more and more common in Europe, it just became the way of dealing with unwanted children who quite often were unwanted. The church spoke out against this practice and it sought ways to curb it. And amazingly, in the book, The History of Pediatrics, there's actually a chapter that is dedicated to how the church created laws to eradicate infanticide, and not only that, but to provide care for these abandoned children. Not just laws against it, but ways of taking care of these children that needed a place. And so at the Council of Nicaea, which many of you are familiar with, the Council of Nicaea in 325, it was decreed that in each village, a hostility for the sick, the poor, and the vagrant should be established. And these were, in effect, the first orphanages. And this continued to be confirmed by many more councils, and these orphanages were set up all over the world. And in 588, at the Council of Constantinople, it was decreed that infanticide was to be seen on equal terms as homicide. You see, the Christian church has made a radical effect on the world. 
And not only did they say that this is right, we shouldn't be doing this, but they also say we want to be able to provide and so that each child would have a place, would have provision for them, that we would be able to look after them and to raise them and to give them a place. It was a very practical way that the church became salt and light in the world. I mean, what effect are we having in our world? What difference does your involvement have in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, and in your home? Well, let's finally take a look at what is the result of this. In verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When these things begin to happen, when we start living out the hard attitudes of the Beatitudes in a very practical and a public way, it says others will notice and they will have that opportunity to give glory to God. It's not going to happen with every person, but it will happen with some. And that's the theme throughout the Bible. God gave his people the law, which was a good way to live, which would cause the surrounding nations to be able to see that they had a great love for each other, that they had generosity, that they had compassion, and then they would desire that as well. And in fact, that happened. There were many from the outside who came to be a part of God's people because of what they saw, what these communities were like in the midst of the places that they found themselves in. Jesus also praised this for his disciples in John 17, that his disciples would live out these good deeds and how we love him and the watching world would see it and that they also would come to him. It's a theme that runs through all of scripture. We're all called to this because it bears a remarkable result. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is what we are called to do. And the result is that there will be those who will see this, who will desire it, that, that through the good works that we are able to do publicly, seen by others, sometimes not seen by others, that they will as well give glory to our Father who is in heaven. An amazing result that can happen just through practically living out what has happened in our heart practically being portrayed and lived out in our lives that follow. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. An astonishing truth that may be hard to accept, but Jesus declares it about you. So as we go from here this morning, let's allow our good deeds to shine before a watching world, a watching friend group, a watching student body, a watching workforce, a watching neighborhood, a watching family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words this morning. As Jesus preached this sermon, it is a very convicting sermon. It's also a very defining sermon, and it encourages us. So you bring us conviction, but you bring us encouragement. We thank you for this, that as we are living out the way in which you have called us to live through your Beatitudes, that there will be a great joy that will come from it. And that there will be many others who will come to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, who will give you glory as a result of this, Father. So, God, I pray that for our own lives personally, that we would take this call to us very personally this morning, that we would think about those areas that you have called us to and what our involvement in those areas causes. And, Lord, if there's ways that we need to confess this and to ask for your forgiveness and to move forward as, as we move forward with living as light, that we would do that as well, God. If we haven't been the kind of uh, salt, uh, salty and light-filled people that we should be in these areas, Father. But God, we thank you that you give us the encouragement to do this, to give us the infilling Holy Spirit 
to be able to live faithfully before you. And I pray that we would do that as individuals, but also as a church. And Lord, that we would have an incredible impact in this community. And just our involvement in this community through the programs that we have, through the way in which that all of us who are a part of this church live our lives in this community, that it would give praise and glory to you, and that we would be able to provide something valuable here in this community that would be greatly missing if we weren't here. So thank you for this effect that we can have as a church, and we do this because of the effect that you have had in our lives. And so we thank you for the power that we have and the power that you display through us and through our church as we live in this way. So thank you for this call this morning. May we be faithful to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com, where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.